and therefore is it able to look beyond all the hills and mountains of difficulty unto the shining horizon of the divine promises. Consequently, faith is blessed with patience and calmly awaits the destined hour for God to intervene and act. Therefore, is it heed that word? For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. Habakkuk 2 verse 3 Though the Hebrews were to lie under Egyptian bondage for a long season, Joseph had not a doubt but that the Lord would, in his appointed time, bring them forth with a high hand. God's delays, dear reader, are not to deny our prayers and mock our hopes, but are for the disciplining of our hearts, to subdue our impatience, which wants things in our own way and time, to quicken us, to call more earnestly upon Him, and to fit us for receiving His mercies when they are given. God often defers His help until the very last moment. It was so with Abraham offering up Isaac. Only when his son had been bound to the altar and he had taken the knife into his hand to slay him, did God intervene. It was so with Israel at the Red Sea, Exodus 14.13. It was so with the disciples in the storm. The ship was covered with the waves before Christ calmed the sea, Matthew 8.24-26. It was so with Peter in prison. Only a very few hours before his execution did God free him. Acts 12, verses 6 to 8. So too, God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform, and often in a manner quite contrary to outward likelihood. The history of Joseph affords a striking example. He was first made a slave in Egypt and this in order to his being made ruler over it. Who would have thought that the prison was the way to the court? So it was with his descendants, when their tale of bricks was doubled and the straw withheld. Who would have looked for deliverance? Yes, God's ways are strange to flesh and blood. Often he allows error to arise to clear the truth. Bondage often makes way for liberty. Persecution and affliction have often proved blessings in disguise. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Genesis 50.24 How plainly and how blessedly does this bring out the strength of Joseph's faith. There was no hesitancy or doubt. He was fully assured that God cannot lie and that he would surely make good his word. Equally certain is it that God's promises unto us will be fulfilled. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13.5 Therefore, May the dying saint exclaim, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 23, 4 So too, our faith may look beyond the grave unto the glorious resurrection, and say with David,
my flesh also shall rest in hope. Psalm 16, verse 9 By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel. Hebrews 11, 22 Let us now take note of the breadth of his faith. A true Christian is known by his affection for Zion. The cause of Christ upon earth is dearer to him than the prosperity or disposition of his personal estate. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3.14 Thus it was with Joseph. Before he gave commandment concerning his bones, he was first concerned with the future exodus of Israel and their settlement in Canaan. How different with the empty professor who is ruled by self-love and has no heart for the people of God. He may be interested in the progress of his own denomination, but he has no concern for the church at large. Far otherwise is it with the genuine saint. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Psalm 137 verses 5 and 6. So Joseph, at the very time of his death, was engaged with the future happiness of God's people. Beautiful indeed is it to see the dying Joseph unselfishly thinking about the welfare of others. Oh, may God deliver the writer and reader from a narrow heart and a contracted spirit. True faith not only desires that it shall be well with our own soul, but with the church at large. Behold another lovely example of this in the case of the dying daughter-in-law of Eli, the high priest. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. For Samuel 4.22 Not my father-in-law is dead, not my husband has been slain, but the glory is departed. But most blessed of all is the case of him of whom Joseph was hero-type. As our precious Savior drew near the cross, yea, on the very night of his betrayal, it is recorded that, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John 13.1 The interests of God's people were ever upon his heart. Let us note how another aspect of the breadth of true faith was illustrated by Joseph. Faith not only believes the promises which God has given to his saints individually, but also lays hold of those given to the church collectively. There have been Many seasons when the cause of Christ on earth has languished sorely, when it has been in a low state spiritually, when eminent leaders have been all called home, and when fierce persecution broke out against the little flock which they had left behind. Even so, they still had that sure word, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. In all ages, the enemy has sought to destroy the people of God, but the Lord has defeated his designs and 
rendered his opposition ineffectual. Oh, for a faith to now lay hold of this promise. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Isaiah 59, verse 19. And gave commandment concerning his bones. The reference here is to what is recorded in Genesis 50, verse 25. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. This brings out another characteristic of his faith, the public avowal of it. Joseph's faith was no secret thing hidden in his own heart, about which others knew nothing. No, though he had occupied for so long an eminent situation, he was not ashamed to now let others know that he found his support and confidence in the promises of God. He had been of great dignity and authority among the Egyptians, and his fame for wisdom and prudence was great among the nations. It was, therefore, the more necessary for him to openly renounce all alliance with them, lest posterity think he had become an Egyptian. Had he liked and loved the Egyptians, he had wanted his tomb among them, but his heart was elsewhere, and gave commandment concerning his bones. This was not a superstitious request, as though it made any difference whether our bodies be deposited in consecrated ground or no. Rather, it was first to exhibit his belief in the promises of Jehovah. Though he could not go in person into the land of Canaan, yet he would have his bones carried thither, and thus symbolically, as it were, take possession of it. Second, to confirm the hope of his brethren, and thus draw their hearts from the goodly portion in Goshen. He would sharpen the desire of the nation to earnestly aspire after the promised redemption when he was dead. Third, to establish a public memorial by which on all occasions his posterity might call to mind the truth of the promise. Proof that this dying request of Joseph's was designed as a public memorial is found in noting a significant change between the wording of Genesis 50 verse 24 and 50 verse 25. In the former, Joseph said unto his brethren, in the latter, he took an oath of the children of Israel. Compare Exodus 13 verse 19. By the heads of their tribes, he brought the whole people into this engagement, binding on after generations. Thus Joseph established this monument of his being of the favored seed of Abraham. Joseph's requesting his brethren to take an oath illustrates the power of example. Compare Genesis 47:31. He made reference to his bones rather than to his body, because he knew another two centuries must yet run their course. The whole transaction was an emblematic pledge of the communion of saints, Though the Christian at death be cut off from his loved ones on earth, he is introduced unto the spirits of the just in heaven. Chapter 15 The Faith of Moses' Parents Hebrews 11.23 By faith, Moses, when he was born, 
within three months of his parents. Hebrews 11.23 A considerable length of time elapsed between what is recorded in the preceding verse and what is here before us. That interval is bridged by what is found in Exodus 1. There we see a marked revolution taking place in the lot of the Hebrews. In the days of Joseph, the Egyptians had been kind, giving them the land of Goshen to dwell in. Then followed another dynasty, and a king arose who knew not Joseph, probably a foreigner who had conquered Egypt. This new monarch was a tyrant of the worst kind, who solely oppressed the descendants of Abraham. So subject to drastic changes are the fortunes, both of individuals and nations, Hence the force of those words, In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God also has set the one over against the other, to the end that man should find nothing after him. Ecclesiastes 7.14 The policy of the new ruler of Egypt quickly became apparent, and he said unto the people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies. Exodus 1 verses 9 and 10 Ah, but though there are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Proverbs 19.21 So it proved here, for the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Exodus 1.12 Yes, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33 verses 10 and 11 Next, The king of Egypt gave orders to the midwives that every male child of the Hebrews should be slain at birth. Exodus 1, 15 and 16 But all the laws which men may make against the promises that God has given to his church are doomed to certain failure. God had promised unto Abraham a numerous seed, Genesis 13, 15, and had declared to Jacob, Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Genesis 46.3 As well then might Pharaoh attempt to stop the sun from shining as prevent the growth of the children of Israel. Therefore do we read, But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Exodus 1.17 Refusing to accept defeat, Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river. Exodus 1.22 Now that the execution of this barbarous edict had been entrusted unto his own people, no doubt Pharaoh imagined that success was fully assured for his evil design. Yet it was at this very season that God brought to the birth the one who was to emancipate his suffering nation. John Owen said, How blind are poor sinful mortals in all their contrivances against the church of God. 
when they think all things secure, and that they shall not fail of their end, that their counsels are laid so deep as not to be blown upon, their powers so uncontrollable, and the way in which they are engaged so effectual, that God himself can hardly deliver it out of their hands. He that sits on high laughs them to scorn, and with an almighty faculty lays provisions for the deliverance of his church, and for their ultimate ruin. End of quote. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. Exodus one twenty-one, and 2 verses 1 and 2. Amram and Jochebed refused to be intimidated by the cruel commandment of the king and acted as though no injunction had been issued by him. Were they reckless and foolish? No, indeed. They took their orders from a far higher authority than any earthly potentate. The fear of the Lord was upon them, and therefore they were delivered from that fear of man which bringeth a snare. In covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this godly couple from the tribe of Levi allowed not the wrath of man to disrupt their domestic happiness. Again John Owen said, By faith Moses, when he was born, within three months of his parents, Hebrews 11.23, it is the faith of Moses' parents that is here celebrated. But because... It is mentioned principally to introduce the discourse of himself and his faith, and also that which is spoken belongs unto his honor. It is thus peculiarly expressed. He saith not, By faith the parents of Moses, when he was born, hid him, but by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, that is, by the faith of the parents who hid him. Unquote. Ah, here is the explanation of the conduct of Amram and Jochebed. It was by faith they acted. It was a living, supernatural, spiritual faith which sustained their hearts in this crisis and kept them in perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3 Nothing was so quiet in the mind and still its fears as a real trusting in the Lord of hosts. The birth of Moses occurred during the very height and fury of the attack that was being made upon the infant males of the Hebrews. Herein we may discover a striking foreshadowment of the attempt which was made upon the life of the Christ child when, in his efforts to slay him, Herod gave orders that all the children in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under should be slain. Matthew 2.16 Many a typical representation of the principal events in the life of the Redeemer is to be found in the Old Testament, and at scores of points did Moses in particular prefigure the great deliverer of his people. It is a deeply interesting line of study which we commend to our readers to go over the history of Moses and note down the many details in which he pictured the Lord Jesus. By faith, 
Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Hebrews 11.23 It seems clear from the final clause that Pharaoh had either given orders that the Hebrews should notify his officers whenever a male child was born unto them, or that they themselves should throw him into the river. Instead of complying with this atrocious enactment, the parents of Moses concealed their infant for three months, which supplies us with a clear example of we ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 It is true that the Lord requires His people to be subject unto the higher powers. Romans 13.1 But this holds good only so long as the higher powers, human governors, require the Christian to do nothing which God has forbidden or prohibit nothing which God has commanded. The inferior authority must always give place before the superior. As this is a principle of great importance practically, and one concerning which confusion exists in some quarters, let us amplify a little. Holy Scripture must never be made to contradict itself. One of its precepts must never be pressed so far as to nullify another. Each one is to be interpreted and applied in harmony with the general analogy of faith and in the light of the modifications which the Spirit Himself has given. For example, children are required to honor their parents, yet Ephesians 6.1 shows that their obedience is to be in the Lord. If a parent required something directly opposed unto Holy Writ, then he is not to be obeyed. Christian wives are required by God to submit themselves unto their husbands, and that in everything, Ephesians 5.24, obeying them, 1 Peter 3.6. Nevertheless, their subjection is to be of the same character as that of the church unto Christ, Ephesians 5.24, and inasmuch as he never demands anything from the church which is evil. So, he does not require the wife to obey injunctions which are positively harmful. If a thoughtless husband should insist on that which would be highly injurious to his wife's health, she is to refuse him. Submission does not mean slavery. Now the same modification we have pointed out here obtains in connection with the exhortations of Romans 13, 1-7. In proof, let us cite a clear example to the point from either testament. In Daniel 3, we find that the king of Babylon, the head of the powers that be, erected an image unto himself and demanded that, on a given signal, all must fall down and worship the same. Verse 5. But the three Hebrew captives declared, Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Verse 18. And the Lord vindicated their non-compliance. In Acts 4, we see Peter and John arrested by the Jewish powers who commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 18. Did the apostles submit to this ordinance? No. Instead, they said, 
whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Verse 19. As Romans 13.4 declares, the magistrate is the minister of God to thee for good. Should he require that which the word condemns as evil? He is not to be obeyed. And what was it that enabled the parents of Moses to act so boldly and set at naught the royal edict? Our text furnishes clear answer. It was by faith they acted. Had they been destitute of faith, most probably the king's commandment would have filled them with dismay and in order that their own lives should be spared would have promptly informed his officers of the birth of Moses. But instead of so notifying the Egyptians, they concealed the fact, and though by preserving the child they followed a course which was highly hazardous to sense, yet under God it became the path of security. Thus, the particular aspect of our theme which here receives illustration is the courage and boldness of faith, faith overcoming the fear of man. That brings before us another characteristic of this heavenly grace, one which evidences its excellency, and one which should move us to pray daily for an increase of the same. Faith is a spiritual grace which enables its possessor to look away from human terrors and to confide in an unseen God. It declares, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, 1. True it is that this faith is not always an exercise. Yea, more often is its bright shining overcast by the clouds of unbelief and eclipsed by the murky dust which Satan raises in the soul. We say this faith, for there are thousands of professing Christians all around us who boast that their faith is constantly in exercise and that they are rarely, if ever, tormented by doubts or filled with alarms. Ah, my reader, the faith of such people is not the faith of God's elect. Titus 1 verse 1, entirely dependent upon the renewing power of the Holy Spirit? No, it is but a natural faith in the bare letter of Scripture, which by an act of their own will they can call into exercise whenever they please. But unto such the many fear-nots of God's Word have no application. But when the dew of heaven falls upon the regenerated heart, its language is, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Psalm 56.3 Great indeed is the power of a God-given and God-sustained faith, not only to produce outward works, but to affect the workings of the soul within. This is something which is not sufficiently considered these days, when attention is confirmed almost exclusively to visible results. Faith regulates the affections. It curbs impetuosity and works patience. It chases away gloom and brings peace and joy. It subdues carnal fears and produces courage. Moreover, faith not only sustains the heart under severe trials, performs difficult duties, but, as the sequel shows, 
obtains important benefits. How pertinent then was this particular case unto those to whom this epistle was first sent? How well was it calculated to encourage the sorely tried and wavering Hebrews to remain faithful to Christ and to trust God with the issue and outcome? By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. Probably two things are included in these words. First, that they concealed all tidings of his birth. Second, that they hid him in some part of the house. No doubt their diligence was accomplished by fervent cries to God and the putting forth of a daily trust in him. The fact that it was by faith that they hid him shows that real spiritual faith is cautious and wary and not reckless and presumptuous. Though faith overcomes carnal fear, yet it does not disdain the use of lawful means for overcoming danger. It is fanaticism and not faith which tempts God. To needlessly expose ourselves unto danger is sinful. Faith is no enemy unto lawful means, as Acts 27.31 plainly enough shows. It is to be observed that the words of our text go beyond Exodus 2 verse 2, where the preserving of Moses is attributed unto his mother. As both the parents were engaged in the hazard, both had a hand in the work. No doubt Amram took the lead in advice and contriving, and Jochebed in the actual execution. As the parents have a joint interest in their children, both should share in the care and training of them, each seeking to help the other. Where there is an agreement between husband and wife in faith and in the fear of God, it makes way for a blessed success in their duties. When difficult tasks confront husbands and wives, it is their wisdom to apply themselves unto that part and phase of it which each is best suited for. Matthew Henry said, It is a happy thing when yoke fellows draw together in the yoke of faith as the heirs of the grace of God, and where they do this in a religious concern for the good of their children, to preserve them not only from those who would destroy their lives, but corrupt their minds. Unquote. The three months teaches us that the parents of Moses persevered in that which they began well. They were prudent from the hour of his birth, and they maintained their vigilance. It is no use to shut the stable door when the horse is out. Care in preventing danger is to be continued as long as the danger is threatened. Some, perhaps, may ask, Would it be right for the people of God today to give shelter to one of his saints or servants, who was being unjustly hounded by the powers that be? Surely, it is always the duty of love to shield others from harm. But suppose the hidden ones are being inquired after by the authorities. May they still be concealed? Yes, if it is done without the impeachment of the truth, for it is never permissible to lie. To do so shows a distrust of the sufficiency of God. Should the officers ask whether you are sheltering one they seek, 
either remain silent or so prudently word your answer as will neither betray the party nor be guilty of falsehood. Others may ask, since God purposed to make Moses the leader of his people and accomplish such a memorable work through him, why did he not by some wonderful and powerful miracle preserve him from the rage of Pharaoh? Answer, God was able to send a legion of angels for his protection or to have visibly displayed his might by other means, but he did not. It is generally God's pleasure to show his power through weak and despised means. Thus it was during the infancy of his own incarnate son. God warned Joseph by a dream, and he took the young child and his mother into Egypt, remaining there till Herod was dead. Frequently it pleases the Most High to magnify his providence by things which men despise, by feeble instruments, and this that they may the more plainly appear the excellency of the power is of him. In the preservation of the infant Moses, we may see a blessed illustration of how God preserves his elect through infancy and childhood, and from all that threatens their existence prior to the time when he regenerates them. This is expressed in Jude 1 preserved in Jesus Christ and called. How blessed is it for the Christian to look back behind the time when God called him out of darkness into his marvelous light and discern his guarding hand upon him when he was dead in trespasses and sins. There are few, if any, of the Lord's people who cannot recall more than one incident in early life when there was but a step betwixt them and death. Yet even then, as in the case of the infant Moses, a kind providence was watching over them. Then let us return thanks for the same. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. It is really surprising how many of the commentators, led by sentiment, have quite missed the meaning of this verse. Exodus 2 verse 2 states that his mother saw that he was a goodly child. The Hebrew word tob being the same term whereby God approved of his works of creation and declared them perfect. Genesis 1. From which the conclusion has been drawn that it was the exceeding fairness or beauty of the babe which so endeared him to his parents. They were moved to disregard the king's edict and take special pains to preserve him. But this is only carnalizing scripture. In fact, contradicting what the Holy Spirit has here said. Hebrews 11.23 distinctly affirms that it was by faith the parents of Moses acted and this it is which explains their conduct. Now Romans 10.17 tells us, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Thus Amram and Jochebed must have received a divine revelation, not recorded in the Old Testament. And this word from God formed the foundation of their confidence and supplied the motive power of what they did. 
It is true they knew from the prophecy given to Abram, Genesis 15, that the time for the deliverance of Israel from Egypt was drawing near, as they also knew from the prediction of Joseph, Genesis 50:24, that God was going to undertake for his people. Yet we are persuaded that Hebrews 11:23 refers to something more definite and specific. Most probably, the Lord made known to these parents that their child was to be the promised deliverer and furnished them beforehand with a description of him. This revelation which Amram and Jochebed heard from God, they believed, and that before Moses was born. When in due time he was given to them, they saw he was a proper child. It was the discernment of faith and not the mere admiration of nature. As Acts 7 verse 20 declares, according to Baxter's interlinear, in which time was born Moses, and was beautiful to God, unquote, which indicates an appearance of something divine or supernatural. They recognized he was peculiarly grateful and acceptable to God. They perceived something remarkable in him, which was the divine token to them that he would be the deliverer of Israel. John Calvin said, probably, there was some mark of future excellency impressed on a child which gave promise of something extraordinary. Unquote. According to Matthew Henry, the beauty of the Lord set upon him as a presage that he was born to great things, and that by conversing with God his face would shine. Exodus 34.29 and what bright and illustrious actions he should do for the deliverance of Israel, and how his name should shine in the sacred record. End of quote. Resting with implicit confidence upon the revelation which they had received from Jehovah, their faith now confirmed by God's mark of identification upon the babe, the parents of Moses preferred its safety before their own. It was not simply they trusted God for the outcome, but in their souls was that faith which is the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and in consequence they were not afraid of the king's commandments. Had it been only a natural or human admiration which they had for a singularly beautiful child, then it had been by affection or by infatuation they hid the infant, and that would only have intensified their fear. For the more they admired the infant, the more afraid would they have been of harm befalling it. Mere beauty is by no means a sure sign of excellency, as 1 Samuel 16, 7, 2 Samuel 14, 25, Proverbs 31, verse 30 plainly enough show. No, the infant Moses was beautiful to God, Acts 7, 20, and Perceiving this, Amram and Jochebed acted accordingly. First they hid him for three months, and when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and so forth. Exodus 2 verse 3 It may be that the Egyptians searched the houses of the Hebrews every three months. No doubt it was under the divine direction that the parents of Moses now acted, for surely 
the placing of this precious child by the brink of the fatal river. Exodus 1 verse 22 was the last thing that carnal reason had suggested. We do not at all agree with those who think the faith of Moses' parents wavered when they placed him in the ark, when one lawful means of preservation from persecution will no longer secure. It is a duty to betake ourselves unto some other which is more likely to do so. Matthew 10.23 In the kind providence of God, His interests and ours are often twined together, and then nature is allowed to work, though even then grace must bear sway. So it was here. The parents of Moses had received a direct commandment from God how to act and what to do, as they by faith clearly denotes, and in their case, what he prescribed harmonized with their own feelings. But sometimes God's requirements and our natural affections clash, as was the case when he required Abraham to offer up Isaac, and then the claims of the Lord must yield to the higher. When the current of human affection clashes not with God's express precepts, we may follow it, for He allows us to take in the help of nature, a brother beloved, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Philemon 16 Chapter 16 The Faith of Moses Hebrews 11, 24-27 As John Owen said, the Apostle, as we showed before, takes his instances from the three states of the Church under the Old Testament. The first was that which was constituted in the giving of the first promise, continuing to the call of Abraham. Herein his first instance is that of Abel, in whose sacrifice the faith of that state of the Church was first publicly confessed and by whose martyrdom it was confirmed. The next state had its beginning and confirmation in the call of Abraham, with the covenant made with him and the token thereof. He, therefore, is the second great instance on the role of testimonies. The constitution and consecration of the third state of the church was in the giving of the law, and herein, an instance is given in the lawgiver himself, all to manifest that whatever outward variations the church was liable to and pass under, yet faith and the promises were the same, of the same efficacy and power under them all. End of quote. In approaching the careful study of our present verses, It is of great importance to observe that they begin a new section of Hebrews 11. If this be not seen, they cannot be interpreted aright. The opening verse of each section of this chapter takes us back to the beginning of the life of faith, and each one presents a different aspect of the nature or character of saving faith. The first three verses of Hebrews 11 are introductory. The fourth beginning the first division. There, in the example of Abel, we see where the life of faith begins. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.